Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Serena Kaczynski, the digital editor of The New Statesman, and welcome to a special edition of The New Statesman podcast, where over two exciting episodes, we will explore the questions raised for the future of the left by our New Times issue, which is out now. Joining me today will be Jason Cowley, the editor of The New Statesman, Colin Robinson, the co-founder of All Books, and a New Statesman contributor who will give us the US perspective, and George Eaton, the New Statesman's political editor. And later on, I'll be talking to Phil Collins, no, not the pop star, the former Tony Blair speechwriter, who's now a columnist for The Times, and Roswin Jones, the journalist and campaigner who writes for The Daily Mirror and has been up and down the country interviewing people in the wake of the Brexit vote. Jason, would you like to first maybe outline where, you, where the idea for the New Times issue came from and what the history of the concept is? Well, New Times um, echoes back to the famous or the celebrated Marxism Today issue called New Times in October 1988, when Martin Jacks, the editor, Stuart Hall and other contributors were attempting to analyse what they saw as the hegemony of Thatcherism and a move towards a new era of capitalist dominance. They analysed the, the changing role of the state, changing roles of work, shifts in production, outsourcing, and so on and so forth. We feel quite strongly on, on the New Statesman that we've moved into new times again. You know, we've had the Brexit vote. You've got the rise of authoritarian populism in Europe and in America with Trump, Erdogan in Turkey, Putin in Russia. What, what's often called the neoliberal era, the era of free-flowing capital and people seems to be coming to an end. Some, some contributors to the issue think it, thinks it crashed with the crash, with the financial crash of 2007, 2008. I'm not so sure, but that's one theme of the issue. We're seeing a resurgence of interest in the state. Alain Juppé in France has, has just published a book called The Strong State, um, Theresa May seems interested in redefining the state, the strong state, controlling your borders, the state as the final guarantor of order. So there's a lot going on, not least the rise of Corbyn and Corbynism, 
it feels to me that there's a permanent shift in the Labour Party to the left. If there's been a realignment of politics, it's at the centre-left. The moderate centre-left seems to me to have been defeated and the Labour Party is moving or has moved permanently to the left. So I have um, a political editor with me, George Eaton, and also I'm pleased to say Colin Robinson from the US. And Colin, what, what, what do you sense? Do you, do you agree with us that the, these are new times and, and there are all sorts of trends and currents? Yeah, I do. I think that, um, I mean, I hate the word neoliberalism. It seems to me to be uh, completely opaque. I mean, neoliberalism, it's just, uh, what does it mean to anyone? I really think we should stop using it. Um, should we attempt to define it before we dismiss it? I mean, well, it, I, think, I think people who use it think it's, it, it's the era of um, small state, um, privatisation, um, dominance of monetary policy. Yeah, free mar- the, the, the free market, the untrammeled free market. Yeah. I think that period has very, very clearly started to unravel. And it's been in place really for my entire political uh, life, you know. And I have no mourning if that is coming to an end. I feel very, very pleased that it's coming to an end because it's been a period for people on the left like me where time after time we've been right. Um, you know, I think we were... We were certainly right over Iraq. We were right over the deregulation of the financial markets. We were right over, I think I would argue, over the miners and the the defending the mining communities. And yet we've been consistently on the right side and we've always lost. So if that period is coming to an end now, um, and I think it is, it's not at all clear what it's going to be replaced with. Um, but I'm happy to take my chances. You know, it may work, may very well turn out to be worse, but it might turn out to be better. And um, I think there are some quite encouraging signs that um, uh, things may improve. Um, the engagement of people in politics. I mean, if you look at the, the vote in Brexit, whatever you think about the result, people were very, very passionately involved in that the mobilization of young people around Corbyn and Sanders in the United States. These are things that we haven't seen for a long time. And I think, um, I think yes, that's, that's, that's pretty true. Opt- we, we had I the referendum in Scotland as well in 2014, which right. you, had, you had a wonderful flourishing in Scotland, a wonderful engagement with politics and, and democratic ideas. And then you had the referendum most recently, the EU referendum, which similarly, I mean, 72% turnout in that referendum was pretty good and there were a lot of people particularly in traditional labor areas who hadn't voted for a long time who were mobilized to vote you may not have liked the way they voted certainly labor much of the labor party doesn't but nevertheless it's a good thing that they voted george what, what, what's your sense what's what's going on what currents are you are you, are you identifying well, i think the financial crisis is the most useful departure point to, to analyze and what I remember about that is there was this social democratic optimism at the time. They felt it was a centre-left moment. And now, of course, the centre-left has been squeezed from all sides. It's been squeezed by uh, the populist insurgent left, uh, Jeremy Corbyn in the, in the case of Labour, Bernie Sanders in the case of, of the, the US Democrats. It's been squeezed on the national level by the insurgent populist right, Trump in the US, UKIP here, um, by uh, national movements, the SNP in Scotland. And then also mainstream conservatives have endured uh, the political convulsions uh, a lot better than uh, than the centre-left have. So you see the Christian Democrats in, in Germany, although of course they, they're having some problems now. And then obviously the conservatives here who won their first 
majority for, for, for 23 years. Uh, and so the question is, I think, why, it, far from being a, a social democratic moment, it's probably led to the biggest crisis of social democracy since, since the 1930s. And we obviously have a range of contributors responding to this. You've got some like Paul Mason, who are very clearly on, on the left, some like Philip Collins, who would very much be on, on the right of the, the Labour coalition. But what I think is interesting is there is some overlap in their analysis. And, and one is that I think the centre-left and perhaps the, left, the wider left as well, underestimated the importance of culture and identity, that they had far too an economistic view of politics. And Corbyn's success is in some ways actually a vindication of that view because he, he spoke more broadly than just technocratic prescriptions. It, it was in some ways a, a cultural moment. And then I think another theme is clearly how the left bridges this divide between the cosmopolitan middle-class liberal wing of its coalition and the working class, uh, more socially conservative uh, side. And that's through, I think, looking at issues such as housing, wages, uh, But that, what, what you're saying and what many of the contributors to the issue, um, Rob Ford, for instance, John Harris, and others, they're saying that that coalition of sort of the London left or the metropolitan liberal bourgeois left and the traditional organised working class is no longer a viable election winning coalition. Do you agree with that, Colin? No, I don't actually. I think that um, there is um, an anti-establishment dimension to Jeremy's politics which kind of belies the fact that he comes from, you know, Islington, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, he's not seen as being in the inner circle, you know, of conventional politics. And I think that has a strong appeal outside of, uh, outside of, uh, in, in the rest of the country. And I think if you look um, at the mobilizations that Corbyn's been able to achieve, I mean, uh, he spoke in Liverpool, which is where I come from, uh, at 48 hours notice, on a rainy night, and 10,000 people turned up to, to hear him outside St George's Hall. Uh, that's an extraordinary mobilisation in Liverpool. I think, I think Jeremy's got real resonance up there, I, I, I really do, you know, and um, I think that's been proved by him going around the country and drawing these crowds. Now people will say, okay, well these are, you know, the activists, you know, they're the hardcore supporters. But there's a lot of them. I mean, these are political rallies. Same thing was happening with Bernie in the, U in the United States. These are political rallies of a scale that we really haven't seen for decades. You wrote a very good profile for us of um, Bernie Sanders, which I liked a lot. You know Sanders. What's going on with Trump? Some people say he's going to win, and in some ways, Trump, Trump is against the free market consensus of the last 30 years. He seems to be an isolationist, a protectionist, and he's also a racist. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing, is that he's a lot of different things. I mean, he's a populist, and he's certainly a racist, and that's extremely troubling. On the other hand, what he says about free trade is something that I think a lot of people who have progressive politics could identify with. I mean, he is much closer to Bernie on trade than either of them are to Clinton. And um, I think that gives him a kind of resonance. He's also seen as being outside of the establishment. And uh, I think that is a huge boon at the moment in politics, where the establishment has so little credibility. 
So I think, yeah, it's definitely possible that he could win. I mean, the thing is, American politics is not going to be static, whoever wins. I mean, if Trump wins, there's going to be enormous mobilizations against him. And, um, you know, I, I think we're probably in for quite a torrid time in American politics. But it's not as though if Hillary wins, things are going to stay as they are. Because if the center's weak, uh, and it is, I mean, you've had the best person in the White House for the last eight years in terms of holding things together in the shape of Barack Obama, one of the most brilliant politicians, mm. whatever you think of his politics, of, of our lifetime. Um, Clinton is not going to be able to replicate that. So this polarization in American politics to the left and to the right is likely to be accelerated under a Clinton presidency rather than staunched. So things are unfolding in the United States in a very unpredictable way. Okay, to, to wrap up, George, um, it seems to me that the, the leadership contest between Corbyn and Owen Smith has been something of a non-event. And it seems to me at times they've been, it's been an exercise in nostalgia. Both of them are looking back to a time when Labour was strong and making proposals um, around issues such as nationalisation of the railways and so on and so forth. What, what's, what's going on and what, what do you think is going to happen next? And do you, do you agree with me that La the Labour Party has been shifted permanently now to the left and it's over for sort of moderate social democracy? Yes, I think within Labour at the moment, Corbynism is, is, is the only game in town. And the leadership contest was a demonstration of that. So Owen Smith's pitch was essentially, I actually agree with Jeremy Corbyn on most policies, with the exception of a few like Trident, but I'm more competent than him, I'm more electable than him, which was quite a, a dry, uninspiring offer. And I think that's one reason why he's set to perform uh, as, as badly as, as most think. I think it's clear, were Corbyn to, to go at some point, I think another leader could only win on a fairly similar platform, and that's anti-austerity, and pro-immigration, actually. So one reason why a lot of people were, were attracted to Corbyn was that they were very dismayed by the stance that Labour took under Ed Miliband, where they had the, the infamous mugs, controls and immigration. So a key part of the Corbyn coalition is a very socially liberal, uh, predominantly London-based electorate. So that isn't exactly moving in the wrong direction from where say Theresa May is taking the country and perhaps with a, a large number of people behind them. Um, it seems to me that if Corbyn's an economic protectionist but an open borders man, that's exactly the wrong place to be in present times. The polls certainly suggest that at the moment, although of course the view of a lot of Labour voters um, is that it's not uh, Jeremy Corbyn who's to blame for the, for the poor ratings, but the MPs. And they say you know, voters never like disunited parties. And, and were the MPs to actually get behind Corbyn, then Labour would have a, a real chance. But there's an interesting split within the Corbyn coalition. You've got those who think the Tories are going to run into real problems over Brexit. There could be another crisis. Labour is still the main opposition party. This will be the moment that the, that the country will embrace a radical alternative. Then there are others, Paul Mason, for instance, who describe Corbyn as a placeholder. They don't think that he's going to, to win a general election. They see this as a much longer term rebuilding of the left. They talk about moving from traditional party politics to network politics. They believe that this is a 10, maybe 20 year project to, to reinvent the left. So there's a, that's an interesting split between those. I think, I think that's, uh, that's right. This does feel to be like a, a long-term project. It's not, it's not a, a transient shift. And in somehow it's, Corbyn has unlocked something that has been long repressed, I think, among potential Labour voters. 
Yes, and then there's this question: um, Does Labour Labour split? Obviously, because in some ways it feels as if it's already split. You have a more centre-left uh, Parliament-focused wing of the party, and then you have a, a more radical activist protest-focused wing wing of the party. But the electoral obstacle to that, the structural obstacle in, t- in terms of first past the post, is 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 immense. And there, there are some who, who take the view that were Labour to lose a, a general election under Corbyn and were um, his opponents to produce a more inspiring candidate, some of them mention Chukwamuna, who certainly, uh, although I think his, his politics would, would be tough for the Labour selector, certainly has more charisma yeah, than someone we don't like want to get, Smith. We don't want to get involved yes. down in the minutiae of Labour Party politics. We're interested in the, in, in the, in the larger, larger trends. Yes. Um, thank you both. Great to have you in, Colin. Please drop in whenever you're over from New York. George, thank you very much. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com So next up to discuss the future of the left, we have Phil Collins. No, not the pop star the esteemed former Blair speechwriter, Times columnist and New Statesman contributor, and the journalist and campaigner, Roswin Jones, who writes the Daily Mirror's Real Britain column and has travelled around speaking to people in former Labour heartlands who voted out in the EU referendum about their reasons for doing so. Welcome, Phil and Ros. Phil, in your excellent piece for our special issue, you talk about an existential crisis of the left and the Labour Party more specifically, uh, which might result in a permanently changed Labour Party or even no Labour Party at all. Have things really got that bad? They could have done, yes, because there's um, it's not just a crisis of trying to get a leader of the Labour Party who could possibly be Prime Minister. It's a philosophical crisis too. There's something very deep going on in the Labour Party, which is much bigger than Jeremy Corbyn and precedes him. It's something we saw in the European referendum campaign, which is that the Labour Party is now comprised of two groups who've got very little in common. There's a liberal, cosmopolitan, metropolitan group who have done very well out of the world and who have therefore got time to indulge themselves in in campaigns for social justice. And then there's the Labour, old Labour heartlands, the bedrock vote, where people have done much less well and are struggling and to some extent are resentful of the fact that politics doesn't seem to have delivered anything for them. And all the claims that are made about how good politics has been sound rather hollow in some of the old Labour places. And those people voted entirely reasonably, in my view, to leave the European Union as a way of of expressing that. And that coalition is very hard to put back together again. And the Labour Party at the moment doesn't have a great deal to say. It doesn't have any bridge between those two groups. So it's got a deep problem. And it faces the prospect of, of losing its vote in England as it's lost its vote in Scotland. So various forms of identity threaten the Labour Party, which has historically had a great claim on a big block of people. So it's a big, serious crisis, which is more than but exacerbated by the problem of having a leader who's simply not fit to be prime minister. 
Roz, would you maybe like to share with our listeners some of your experiences and encounters that you had traveling around former Labour heartlands and what people there cite as the reasons for their discontent and how engaged they actually feel by Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and the current Labour Party? I think, I mean, one of the privileges of my job at the Mirror writing the Real Britain column is that I get to cover um, huge parts of the country that kind of Twitter and trickle-down economics don't always reach. And um, very recently I've been in Sunderland, which is kind of at the heart of Brexit, walking up and down the very beautiful Roca Beach, uh, trying to ask people why they voted out, what do they feel about the Labour Party. Um, I have to say those conversations are extremely uh, depressing, particularly in the context of watching Labour kind of tear itself apart. I think they see that as just this incredible sideshow which is completely irrelevant to their lives. Labour was already irrelevant to their lives kind of almost before that happened. Um, There's just this incredible rage that the country is not working for them, that since 2010 in particular, I mean I think in the Blair years there was almost there was a kind of benign neglect to these sort of former industrial heartlands. Um, in these in these current years under the Tories, those people are just doing incredibly badly. They're living really difficult lives. They feel like no one's listening to them. And when I was going up and down the beach in Sunderland, I was asking people, "What do you think will actually change as a result of your vote to come out of the EU?" And they said nothing. So I was saying so are you still glad that you voted out? And they say, yes, because we want to stick two fingers up to the establishment and everybody else. We don't actually think we're going to get any material benefit out of what's happened, but we feel that we've shouted very loudly to people who are not listening to us. So the idea that those people have become so disengaged and so disenfranchised, and at the moment there's not much that the Labour Party has to say to them, as Phil says, which is a, is a, is a fundamental problem. But what's worse to me is that in order to win, I feel that Labour's got to, has obviously got to come back together, but it has to start widening itself. It can't just keep disappearing into ever-decreasing silos, getting smaller and smaller, so that the battle between red Tories and trots is, is, is so pointless and so awful, and somehow people have to concentrate on what do they have in common, what's their bit in the middle, what are the bits about social justice and a Labour agenda that we can all agree on and try to move forward, because otherwise... You know, this is just a shipwreck, basically. I mean, Roz, you sound, although uh, also quite doom-laden, slightly more optimistic about the future of the Labour Party and the Labour movement in that, you know, it, it might well come right again in the future. Phil, you're sort of advocating for more of a break. I mean, do you see a split as possible? And, you know, Jeremy Corbyn may not be fit to be Prime Minister, but is there a better alternative out there? Or is that question too reductive of the current crisis? I think there are no worse alternatives out there. Uh, I think a split is desirable, but not likely. Um, I don't think there's much appetite for a split amongst Labour members of Parliament. And I understand why, because splitting is a really difficult thing. You leave behind the bedrock Labour vote and you leave it with the far left who won't be, wouldn't be able to keep it. So it's all the logic suggests what you should do is try and recapture the Labour Party and then turn it into a more sensible direction. I just fear that it may have gone too far and that it may be very difficult, maybe a long time before that happens, because in order to speak to the people in Sunderland, etc., you've got in order to do anything for them rather than simply speak to them, you've got to be in power. And the first clause of the Labour Party constitution commits it to being a parliamentary force and winning power. And in order to do that, 
if Scotland's not going to come back to the Labour Party anytime soon, and I don't think it is, you have to win over people who voted Conservative just 15 months ago. It's just arithmetic. And in order to do that, you've got to have a message which is you've got to be convince them that you're very good at running the economy, that you're very strong on it. In addition, that you have a compassionate form and that you have some sense of understanding where people's lives are going wrong and how politics can help them. Now, it's a simple formula to state. It's very difficult to do. But the Labour Party is not interested even in trying to do that at the moment. It's concerned with itself. It's, and I don't just mean the, the election of a leader. I mean that even if and when Jeremy Corbyn wins again, his whole shtick is about talking to people who are already persuaded. And that is a hopeless electoral strategy. And it means that there's no prospect of a, a Labour government anytime soon. Whether the rest of the party can wrestle it back from the members, I don't know. It's going to be a long time coming, even if that happens. They all think they can, and they think the best option, the quickest option is to remain where they are and win back control. And I wish them well. I think there are other options to be the leader, but at the moment you have to win over the philosophical problem in the Labour Party. I mean, my optimism, I think, comes from the idea of, we sort of talk about the Labour Party, what do you mean by the Labour Party? At the moment, it seems like we can only mean a group of MPs, or we mean Jeremy Corbyn and the people who, who are there. My optimism comes from the, the wide range of people who support the Labour Party. So the stuff that I see day in, day out, you know, trade unions who are a member of the Labour Party who are organising food banks and clothing banks and things like that. Um, there's the wins that we've seen very recently over Sports Direct and kind of poverty pay and these sorts of things. There are still people that are carrying on a really important agenda. At the moment, they're not being well represented at the top of the party um, in any way. But there's still, I feel like there's enough talent, there's enough people that to split would just, you know, would, would just mean obsolescence. I wonder though, after all of this period, there's really, I, somebody like me, that's all liberal on the right of the Labour Party, ought not to be in the same party as Jeremy Corbyn. I really shouldn't be. I mean, philosophically, that's ridiculous. Why do we draw the lines there? Historically, there are reasons why we have, are. We have been, presumably, for, for many years. As long as I'm in charge, yes, that, that's, this well, is OK. And, and I don't say that just... The <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, I mean, I was aware of that. I don't, I don't say it just for that reason. I say it for a, for, a, for a genuine reason, which is that when the right of the Labour Party is in charge, it has a chance of being in government. When the left of the Labour Party is in charge, it does not. And as the purpose of the Labour Party is to be in government, that's why it makes sense for the right of the party to be in charge. I happen to think those things too, so I'm not, it's not purely a strategic choice on my part, but I do think historically that is true. I mean, we've seen a crisis of social democracy happening here and in Europe more broadly as well. I mean, why do you both think, as Phil is explaining, that being a centrist, being, the word centrism has basically become a dirty word in Britain and in Europe? Uh, why are we having this crisis of social democracy? when actually the poll suggests that the majority of the voters, 40% or over, as I saw at the last reckoning, are actually put themselves in the centre. And yet no political party is putting itself there, possibly the Liberal Democrats, but they're a bit too small at the moment to really make an impact. No one seems to want to occupy that political ground. Why do you think that is? 
I think they do want to, they're just sometimes not very good at doing it. David Cameron definitely wanted to occupy that ground. He thought that's what he was doing. Now, we may dispute whether he was, in fact, but that was his aim. And he won an overall majority only 15 months ago. So we have to remember things have not changed that much. We have a Conservative government with an overall majority. There's a pretty conventional outcome in British politics. And I think social democracy has been in crisis for about a century. I don't think it's novel. I also don't think there's much we can learn about British politics from Greece or Italy, because they're different countries. I don't really believe in these grand forces which go across nations. I have a sort of Alan Bennett theory of politics, which is we live in England and it's a funny little place and it's very different. Then you have people like Yanis Varoufakis and Zizek who are advocating for a sort of uh, radical internationalism, the formation of a pan-European movement which can challenge the more undemocratic elements of the European Union. Their argument is that if Syriza had continued the struggle and it had been time to coincide with the rise of Corbyn in the UK, that would have created a sort of groundswell of leftism to challenge the, the governing institutions across Europe. Is that an, a um, utopian ideal or yes. is that a valid Have these people ever debate? walked along Roker Beach talking to the people there? <laughs> Ros, you'll know better than I yeah, do. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, all of that stuff's really, really interesting to be discussed and I'm sure it is being discussed in a momentum meeting, you know, somewhere in a, a metropolitan part of the country. But in a way, to me, that's exactly what, what's wrong, what the disconnect is between Labour, Labour and, its, um, and, and its heartlands, its former heartlands, um, the people that it needs to reconnect with. And I think you can't underestimate that in times of economic uncertainty, people just actually want very easy solutions. They want easy people to blame. They want strong people in power. You know, we've seen it all before in the 30s. If you walk around, I mean, some union organisers have said to me that conditions in some of the factories where they're working, it feels like the 1930s, the, the rage that people are feeling around immigration. Um, there's no outlet for any of those those sorts of views, and that they're really a long way from, really a long way from that. Yeah, I think the 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 issues which are confronting people are what the Chartists used to call the knife and fork issues, as they always are. You take places like the the and northern school shoes. Yeah, yes. the, the, the northern mill towns, for example, which are dissenting places which sometimes vote Tory, sometimes vote Labour. Now, no one there is talking about a grand international cosmopolitan force. They're interested in work and in welfare and in immigration. And they are, as Ross says, to varying degrees angry and insecure and they worry about crime too and safety, the things they've always worried about. And what you want is a government that understands that and has got something to say about them. Now, at the moment, there's nobody in British politics who's got a great deal to say about those things. But if you had to say which of the two main parties, Tories or Labour, had the most to say, well, you'd say the Conservatives. I don't like some of what they say, but they're on that sort of territory. Whereas Labour's off somewhere else. I mean, what's Labour got to say about immigration? Nothing at all. Or welfare. It seems to be in favour of it. Well, that's not, in fact, the view uh, from the northern mill towns. They want a much more sophisticated argument. So I think Labour's not even in the conversation at the moment. But, but also on welfare, the trouble is that the, I mean, enormous numbers of people in those heartlands are reliant on welfare to top up their poverty wages, apart from anything else. So there's, you know, in-work poverty is one of the biggest issues, which at the moment isn't tackled well by the Tories, and Labour could have a lot to say about it. But you also feel that there's, a, when you ask about why our centre-left idea is not flourishing, it's also because the way that our media is, I feel, doesn't 
really allow a lot of those ideas to kind of come to the fore. Except the new statesman, of course, is allowing all these ideas to come to the fore. Just one example has just occurred to me of the the way in which politics pushes people back to the centre. There's a lot of in-work poverty. The Conservative Party responded by establishing a living wage. Now, can you imagine that a Conservative Party 10 years ago would Mm. would have done that? Well, they did. Is that out of strong conviction? Well, probably a little, but it's also about political intent. They wanted to be in the centre, and that was a deliberate attempt to do that. And Theresa May's first speech has cemented that idea, basically. So if the Tories are moving further into the centre, where are these Labour voters in the Northern Heartlands who are disaffected going to go? Is there a risk that they're going to be, while Labour continues to get its act together effectively, uh, UKIP might sort of steam in there, put their tanks on Labour's lawn and take their voters? Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, I think UKIP is an absolutely enormous threat and one that's just not understood because lots of the, I've spoken to many, many UKIP voters. Many of them they don't see themselves as racist. Actually, they're not racist. They're people who are just hearing somebody say something different who looks more like them. It doesn't matter if you say to them, you know, Nigel Farage went to Dulwich College and used to be a banker or whatever. To them, he looks like a bloke who goes in the pub and he has a pint and he you know goes to the eu and sticks two fingers up at them and they think okay let's just let's have somebody different now corbyn could also come into that frame in some ways or could possibly have done um and but does it engage engaging enough of the country in the same way that what obviously Farage has going on his side is that he's peddling a very, very simplistic message. In working class areas, Corbyn sounds like someone who doesn't like the Queen, mm. um, who doesn't want to defend the country, uh, and who's not patriotic. And he wears sandals. He'll go down terribly there. And he's I vegetarian. do. I, uh, and he's vegetarian, which is probably the worst of those things. And we now I'd know. Like to say I'm vegetarian. <laughs> we now know he doesn't like biscuits. <laughs> not necessarily my opinion. But he doesn't I, like I, biscuits, yeah. It's my sociological observation. And I do agree, UKIP is a threat, as indeed every party is a threat to Labour. I think some people will go to the Tories from Labour. I think Labour's vote can scatter to the winds. I think Corbyn has the capacity to take Labour down to about 20% from 29%. I think he's that good. Fantastic. And maybe one final thought sort of to lift us up and and think about what lies ahead. I mean, what next, not just for the British Labour Party, but for the left as a movement, as a force, uh, even if uh, even if that's an activist force, what what lies ahead? What would your individual prescriptions be? I mean, I, I take some hope from the from the Corbyn movement. I think there is if channeled in the right way, there's a new energy, there are new people, um, there are lots of very genuine people who want to make a difference. If, the, if there's a way to harness those people, if there's a way for um, the trade union movement to keep you know, pushing back and protecting workers and so on. And I think, I always think about um, when I used to cover Northern Ireland years ago, there was like, you'd see... This, seemingly kind of intractable disputes but out of the middle of that came the sort of Northern Ireland women's peace movement and they kind of sat down together and said look we can't talk about abortion and we can't talk about these things but actually what are the things that we are really all interested in if we're Protestant or Catholic um, we, we care about the fact that our kids can't go to school and there's tanks on the streets and you know there's all these so somehow if, if the Labour movement will just stop for a minute this is what I would beg it to do is just stop for a minute and think about the things that it has in common on all different sides of the party and work from there, work outwards. 
Um, and because failure to do that would be absolutely catastrophic for ordinary working people in the UK. There is no dominant force in British politics at the moment. The Conservative Party has a very fragile majority and has set itself a ludicrous task of trying to take us out of the European Union. So it's going to be a very difficult time. There is a space for a coherent, sensible left-of-centre opposition which could easily become a government in time. We don't have it yet, but actually you don't see a force which is unbeatable in front of you. You see an entirely beatable proposition in the current Conservative Party. And if the Labour Party can reform itself around another leader who does unleash the energy that Ross says has come into the party, which he has, uh, and which manages to make that bridge between its, its current coalition, then there is a big opportunity here still for Labour. That's what's keeping people in the party. That's what's preventing the split, because they can see that. Strangely enough, politics is so volatile that they think they're not that far away from from a possible opportunity. There's an awful lot of work to do, but in so long as the Tory party is not dominant, there's still hope. And would that new structure that you're uh, idealising, which sounds uh, sounds credible, um, would that have space for protest movements such as the much-discussed momentum, which was the subject of Channel 4's dispatches? Part of opposition is protest. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. And part of being a pluralist, which I am, is you have lots of different points of of protest and, and argument and dispute. So I'm very much in favour of, of that all over the place. But that's not the same as commanding a parliamentary force. So to have it within a party is quite different because a protest movement is deliberately narrow, specific, pointed and deep. Whereas a political coalition is by, its, is by definition broad and quite shallow because you're picking up people who are not aligned, who are not political. And so they're, they're fundamentally different things. So to confuse the one with the other in parliamentary forces, I think, is a real mistake. I think the Labour Party is making that error at the moment. But I'm not against protests and, and campaigning and disputes and all that. It's just trying to get each thing in its right place. And also it's about, I think, remembering why lots of people vote for their MP. It's not necessarily because of wider politics. It's because their MP is an amazing... You know, many Labour MPs have huge amounts of casework. They're in very kind of poor bits of the country. And the work that they do with their constituents is a huge part of why they get re-elected. So there's also thinking about, you know, how the party works and how it reaches out isn't always on Twitter. It's often a very physical thing around we helped get this person in their house and this person couldn't get into this school and, you know, that's, that's a huge part of how they kind of interact with the public. I suspect Momentum might respond to this by trying to get rid of some of these people. Um, I mean, you mentioned the dispatches programme. In, down in Brighton, Peter Kyle took the seat from the Tories for Labour and he's been rewarded with his local activist deciding to try and deselect him. I mean, it's madness. It's absolutely crazy. It's a complete misunderstanding of what the Labour Party is and is for. And that's, in the end, the crisis that I was writing about in the issue. It's a crisis of purpose, just to add to the philosophical and organisational and leadership crises. There's every crisis you can possibly imagine all coming together. But I think, because I just want to take every person that I'm in the Labour Party who says that they're having an existential crisis and a philosophical crisis, and I want to take them to the food banks that I go to all the time, and I want to say, you t- go and tell those people that you're having an existential crisis about, you know, the future of the left. I suppose the point that Phil is making in a way, though, is that a movement needs to have a purpose, and uh, the purpose of the Labour Party was always workers' rights, 
And as industrial capital has declined, it's lost that central unifying purpose. I mean, the SNP, for instance, is a very broad coalition, pro-business, old socialists, etc. And yet they have a unifying thread in independence. If and when the, that thread disappears, a second referendum happens, they, they will lose it potentially, then we could see the collapse of the SNP in Scotland. I think that that is a that's a, an example of what the Labour Party is going through. It lacks a central unifying philosophy and ideology currently. But, but it if it does, that's insane. It's like well, I mean, we're living you know, we're living in a period of incredible. I mean, units haven't been needed more since the Victorian times. We look at the Mike Ashleys of the world, um, Sports Direct, the kind of Uberization of the economy. I mean, there's huge pushback that's needed for ordinary people who are absolutely struggling despite being workers. I mean, the Labour Party has never been needed more. If it can't find itself a purpose, you know, in the current scenario, I mean, honestly... There's a clue in the name. <laughs> Labour. <laughs> Indeed. There's a clue in the name. It's all there in that single word. I'm determined to end on a note of optimism, so you're going to tempt me to be gloomy again, but I'm not going to allow you to be. Thank you both very much. You have been listening to the New Statesman's New Times Future of the Left special podcast. Our music is Devil with the Devil by the underscore orchestra. And you can find more information about all our other New Statesman podcasts at www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast.